This upcoming concert season will be all about the boots, and Tecovis is your stop for the best in Western style. Tecovis has seasonal and limited edition offerings this spring and summer, including men's and women's boots, apparel, hats, bags, and more. All Tecovis boots are made by hand in a time-honored tradition with timeless styles that are always on trend. And Tecovis has first wear comfort with little to no break-in period. It's hard to find this level of comfort paired with this level of style. Stop by your local Tecova store, have a complimentary drink or two, that's WCB style, and shop new styles. The smell of fresh leather and friendly staff are at your service. Many stores even have leather custom branding to make your boots truly personalized. And with regular live music and events, there's no in-store experience like it. If you can't make it into a store, just visit tecovas.com. That's T-E-C-O-V-A-S.com. They offer free shipping on all boots, as well as free returns and exchanges, and ship right to your door. Go to tecovas.com and find your new favorite pair of boots today. Fishing like a local isn't just about catching fish. It's about connecting with the environment and the people who call it home. It's about hearing the stories and traditions that have been passed down for generations and sharing unforgettable moments with the people you meet along the way. Fishing like a local is having an experience that stays with you forever. And with Fishing Booker, you can experience it too, no matter where you are. Discover your next adventure on Fishing Booker. Here in the Northern Rockies, dark winter months are outlasted in basements, dens, and nooks, where kindred souls gather together to share intel, swap fly patterns, and relive the memories from seasons past. This gathering spot known locally as the February Room is the inspiration for this podcast. No matter the season, the door is always open to those with a fly fishing story to tell. Brought to you by CD Fishing USA, the North American distributor for composite development fly rods and accessories. 40 years of Kiwi ingenuity and graphite technology now available at cd-fishing.us or your local CD USA dealer. Follow us on Instagram, YouTube, and Facebook. And remember to go fishing. Here's your host, the Carnops, and this is the February Room. Justin here, and welcome to the February Room. Um, typically, we are reaching out to our friends, guides, writers, artists, photographers, folks in the fly fishing industry, um, you know, begging for them to come on and tell us a good fishing story. Um, and today's guest actually reached out to us, which is awesome. And, uh, and he said, Hey, you know, I've got a yarn to spin. Um, I'd love to, to come on and tell you guys my story. Um, so please welcome from Belfouche, South Dakota, Marcus Bevere. Marcus, welcome to the February room. Hey, thanks a lot for having me, Justin. And yeah, I, I do have a yarn to spin. It's one of those tales that, you know, I don't know if they come once in a lifetime, uh, but it seems that uh, bad luck follows me sometimes. And in this case, it was really bad luck. Um, so my story is pretty, pretty short and pretty to the point, but uh, it involved me fishing. It was a Sunday afternoon. Um, the Raiders were playing. Uh, they were winning for once. And so it was a really good day. Fishing was spot on. And I was fishing in a place called Spearfish Canyon. And it's nestled right in the Black Hills, and it's a really fun area to fish. Uh, you know, abundant populations of fish, they're not too picky. Um, and nymphing was really, really good that day. And it happened to be about, God, I want to say it was like three and a half years ago or so. And, you know, just doing standard high stick nymphing or uh, dry dropper, and fish were just snapping things up. I was feeling good. Everything was just going right that day. And, um, got out of the water. My feet started to give out on me a little bit because the water was getting cold. And I figured, you know, it's, you know, two o'clock in the afternoon. I think I'm just going to call it a day. And so I got out of the water and started packing my stuff up, folding my waders up, stuffing them in my trunk and, um, started the trip back home. And it's usually, usually takes about from the spot I was at, it usually takes about 15 minutes to get out of the canyon. And okay. that's kind of going at the normal speed. Um, but I ran into a problem as I was coming out and there was a car that just kept tailing me. They came from a pullout and, you know, I'm not the most patient guy in the world. And so it was really starting to get on my nerves. You know, I'm, I'm sitting there and I'm saying some things that were 
you know, probably not appropriate for air, uh, but they're really, they're really on my nerves. And I was like, God, why are these people tailing me? They just kept, they kept on my back end. And it's like, I, I got to get out of here. So I sped up a little bit, but they, they followed, they followed close. Um, it's one of those things where you kind of lose their plate number in your rear view. That's how close they were. Wow. And, and so I was getting kind of nervous on that. And once I got out of the canyon, um, I figured smooth sailing from there. Notifications started coming back on my phone. Raiders won the game. Um, you know, it was a hell of a day. And uh, I was ready to get back home, eat dinner, and head to work the next day. And uh, So I stopped in town in Spearfish and um, went to the bathroom, got a Diet Coke and a Snickers, and uh, was on my way home. And sometimes just because of the nature of my job, I'll get phone calls on a weekend and it'll be people saying, Hey, you know, I'm not going to be in on Monday or I've got a family event or, or something happened. So it's not uncommon that a number that's not in my phone shows up, but about halfway home, I get a call from a, a 605 number and it wasn't the extended warranty call. Um, <laughs> and, and you know, to be, to be totally frank with you, I got, just a little bit nervous because it was, it was like, how does this kind of weird, you know, someone just called me on a Sunday. Um, but the better part of me, my gut kind of took over and I answered the call. And uh, so I picked up the phone and I said, hello, this is Marcus. And uh, the person on the other end, what, uh, other end said, well, hello, Marcus, this is officer. And I can't remember his name for the life of me from the Spearfish Police Department. <laughs> and I said, how are you doing today? And he's like, pretty good. How are you? I'm like, well, I think I'm pretty good. Um, you know, and a million things are going through my head at that moment. I'm thinking, you know, did I leave my wallet at the gas station? Did I forget something into the canyon? Is he um, an excited Raiders fan? Just calling to <laughs> share the win with you? <laughs> but, brother, brother, this is Broncos country. He was not an excited <laughs> Raiders fan. So, so he starts talking to me and it was small talk at first. And he's like, Hey, were you up in Spearfish Canyon today? And I'm thinking, oh, gosh, I forgot something. All right. Um, and I said, yeah, I was, I was fishing up there. He goes, well, how's the fishing? I said, oh, it's excellent today. It was, it was great. And he goes, oh, okay. And then he just busts into it. He goes, well, he goes, I got a phone call. Um, I was just wondering, did you put a kid in your trunk? <laughs> <laughs> and at that moment, man, I am freaking out. And all I say at the top of my lungs was, a child? <laughs> and he goes, yes, a child. And I, it kind of took my breath away for a minute because I was, I was on the highway already. And, you know, I was right, probably halfway home. I was probably halfway home, probably five miles left to go. And, uh, and I said, no, I said, I didn't put a child in my trunk. I said, why? He goes, well, he said, somebody called your plates in, uh, in Spearfish Canyon. And all I could think of was, that person who was tailing me was getting my plates. So right. somebody somebody called me in and he said, well, he said, where are you at right now? I said, well, I said, I'm right at uh, a landmark called Redwater uh, Bridge. And it's it's right before a large hill. And it's kind of the kind of the halfway point between Belfouche and Spearfish. And so he said, well, he goes, we've got a couple of options. And, and I said, for what? He goes, well, we're going to need to look in your car. And I'm... <laughs> I'm sitting there like, God, you, Jim, you gotta be kidding me. And I said, okay. I said, um, what do you need me to do? He said, well, he said, given where you're at, he said, it's probably best to just go to the Belfouche Police Department when you get home and, uh, and have them search your trunk. I said, okay. And at this point, I'm just, you know, I'm just kind of crap in my drawers. I, I don't really know what to do. My livelihood's at stake at this point, you know, even though I didn't do anything. Right. Um, my livelihood's at stake. Uh, and and so I said, well, I said, uh, okay, I guess I can do that. He goes, I'll radio over there. I'll call him up and tell him you're coming. And I'm thinking to myself, God, how did, you know, how did he get my phone number and things like that? And once I had time to cool down, I figured it out. You know, when you fill out the DMV app, you put a phone number on it. And so they've got it in the system. So it wasn't really that big of a reach. Uh, you know, I was kind of going through the big brother conspiracy theories in my head. And, you know, <laughs> it was, it was a DMV form, man. <laughs> so, so I get to the, I, I get 
past the bridge and I call my wife and um, she's at home and I I said uh, Julia I said I have to I have to go to the police department when I get home and she said what did you do I said nothing I said I don't think I did anything at least and um, <laughs> and she's freaking so, out and she's like I think I kidnapped a child right right and and she's like babe you she's like you could lose your job she's like we're screwed I'm like oh no Julia, I did not kidnap anybody. And she's like, but what What did they see? I'm like, I don't know. And at first I was thinking it was like maybe the handle of my fish pond net. Um, and then I didn't even think of it, but it was probably stocking foot waders. And uh, and so I said, uh, I said, yeah, I said, I'm freaking out, babe. I said, I don't know what to do. I said, she goes, well, you got to go to the police department. And I said, yeah, I, I, I get that. I get it. I know what I need to do, but... I don't know what to do. I said, I don't know how to handle this emotionally. I said, I'm struggling. This sucks. And, um, at that point I get to this large hill called Redwater Hill. And I look to my left cause there's a turnout, uh, to an old highway. And I see a state highway patrol car. And all I'm thinking to myself is, damn it, I'm getting pulled over. And I knew it, you know, I knew it in my heart. I was getting pulled over. Right. Just one of those sinking feelings. And so I get about halfway up the hill and I said, I got to let you go. I'm getting pulled over. And sure enough, the, uh, the lights come on and, uh, I pull to the side of the road and, um, the guy gets out and he, uh, has me roll down the window and I look at him and it was a guy I went to high school with. And so I, I said, Hey, how's it going? And he said, Hey, how's it going? And then he looks at me and he goes, I need to, and I go, yeah. And I just popped the trunk for him. (laughs) (laughs) And so, so he goes back into the trunk and he starts moseying around and I've got rods pushed through the seat and, you know, I've got a ton of crap. I mean, it looks like a fly shop back there. It's just pure hell. And, uh, I'm hoping he doesn't, you know, uh, poke his finger with a hook or anything like that, but. He starts going through things and uh, he doesn't find anything. And he just looks at me and he goes, just have a nice day. And I'm like, whoa, wait a minute. I'm like, what's going on here? He's like, you got called in. Somebody said you stuffed a kid in your trunk. I said, yeah, I know that part. I said, but but why all this? I said, I could if I would have taken a kid, I could have dumped them somewhere, you know? And I mean, it was like the right thing to say. No, it wasn't. And I didn't say that to him, but I mean, that's what's going through your head at that point in time. It's like, you guys waited 10 minutes for this. Like there are so many things that could have happened in that 10 minutes. And I mean, my heart's still pitter pattering in my chest and I'm still freaking out. And, uh, and he looks at me and he said, he said, do you have any idea of what it was that, that you may have put in there? I said, well, I said, I told the, the Spearfish Police Department that it was my net. I said, but I said, I didn't have a clear head when they called. I was freaking out. And he goes, yeah, I understand. He goes, so what do you think it was? I said, I think it was my boot foot waders or my uh, stocking foot waders. I said, but they've got an orange foot. So I, I didn't really, I didn't really think that would be, you know, somebody thinking it was a kid. He goes, well, he goes, they did. He goes, and I'll tell you what, man, I'm pissed. And I'm like, why? He goes, because they've wasted my time today. I'm like, oh, okay. I'm like, I'm sorry, man. And uh, he goes, no, I'm sorry for you. And and I said, well, I said, it's all right. I said, at least nothing bad happened. He goes, well, at least you've got a good story out of the deal. There and, you uh, and I totally did. But when I got home, you know, I hugged my wife and, and I talked to her about it. And then I called my parents and, uh, and I'm like, you guys got to hear this. And, and they were freaking out. And it was just, it was a really wild time. And what makes it even wilder is, the nature of the work that I do um, requires me to have uh, federal background checks um, as well as other checks to make sure that I'm safe to work with the population I work with. And so, you know, it was, it was our entire, our entire livelihood um, was really at stake based on somebody seeing something, you know, good on, good on them for being on the lookout. But, um, it could have been a really potentially scary situation in our book. It was just one of those things where after it's done and over with and you got a couple of years under your belt, it's like, well, at least there's a good story out of the deal. Yeah. Then you can go back and laugh at it. But uh, I'm guessing the folks that 
that called you in weren't fly anglers because uh, they probably were talking <laughs> foot waders, but I can imagine how they could mistake that, especially if it was late in the day. Um, yeah. yeah. Well, that's crazy, man. I have never heard, uh, never heard that one before. Yeah. They called me in and I, I mean, good on them for, for being, I guess, vigilant, but um, really got to check themselves next time because it was, it was just one of those things where, um, you know, it was, it was an honest mistake on their part and, you know, fortunately nobody did anything wrong and, uh, they just, they need, they need to look at Sims waders more often, I guess. I guess so. It's unusual too, that the cop and spearfish, you didn't know him, right? Not at all. No. It's unusual that he called you and, you know, obviously he probably thought something was suspicious, um, for him to call you and ask you the questions that he did is that seems pretty unusual you know i think, I think you so you would do that normally no i would i would think you know and i mean i don't really have much experience with law enforcement in general um but i, I would think that they would have followed up on it when the call came in and searched for the play right away um but um you know i don't have a record um my driving record's pretty clean you know and they're able to look at all that i suppose i would think at least and kind of see who they're dealing with or what they're dealing with, you know. But, um, yeah, he, he made the phone call instead of having somebody follow me or anything like that. But, you know, fortunately for me, I like I said, I hadn't done anything wrong. It was just a case of mistaken identity, so to speak. And that's the way it worked out. But it's one of those things, like I said, you can, you can look back on it and laugh at it. But at the time, it was, it was pretty scary. It was pretty real. Yeah, I bet. I bet. Um, one time we were at the boat ramp um, at the Green River in Utah, and um, it was it was spring break, and we were in college. And you know, I had uh, talked several of my friends into going on this multi day river trip with me on the Green River, and most of them didn't fly fish, but they didn't have anything else going on for spring break, so they were like, "Sure, we'll go." So there was a few different people and their girlfriends and, you know, a lot of the folks didn't have much experience with river trips and stuff. So I brought most of the gear and, and, um, we were at the boat ramp getting ready to launch and, and had, uh, you know, dry bags and, and all this stuff. And, yep. and, uh, you know, pretty soon like an agent from the BLM comes over and starts asking us some questions and then like a state parks, official comes up and, and starts kind of asking me some questions. And then, you know, pretty soon a cop shows up. And so we got like, you know, three different agencies being represented here at the boat <laughs> And, you know, they're like, they kind of start going through my stuff and they're asking us all these questions. And, you know, I mean, we didn't have any weed with us. We didn't have, you know, we had some beers with us. Right. That was it. And they were going through all our stuff and, you know, asking us if we had live bait. And I'm like, no, you know, I'm a fly, we're fly fishermen. We don't have, we don't have anything like that. And one of them asked me to, you know, dig out the contents of my dry bag. Mm -hmm. So I grab my dry bag and I drop it on the boat ramp. And there's this loud pop, like boom. And unbeknownst to me, I had, a 22 revolver in there. Oh, wow. And, and so, and the thing is, is that I know better than this. Like I always left an empty, the hammer on an empty, empty chamber in that revolver. But, um, the night before on the drive out there, um, one of my friends had been shooting it and shooting it in camp and gave it back to me. And I failed to check that the, that the chamber, that the hammer on was empty. So it was on a live round and that live round <laughs> went off in my drive bag surrounded by three cops. And fortunately, the, it, the, the bullet got absorbed by my clothes and stuff in there. It didn't come out. I never found a hole in the dry bag later wow. when I checked. But so, you know, so that happens. And the cops are like looking at me like, what the hell was that? Right. And I reach in there and I, the first thing I grab is my big mag light. And I'm like, oh, the bulb in my mag light blew up. And they're like, oh, okay. <laughs> and just totally, totally, you know no pun intended, dodged a bullet there. Yeah, you did. Um, oh man. Yeah. Our trip was almost over right before it, right before it started. So anyway, green's um, big water too. 
Yeah, we were doing like the uh, the B section, um, mm-hmm. you know, which was a couple night trip or something. We we camped for two or three nights, um, and we were the only people there, so they had nothing better to do. You know, there was like, okay, well, let's see what these kids are up to. They look like trouble. They're from Oregon. Um, what are they doing out here? It's freezing cold. Yeah. So anyway, but uh, lesson learned there. Uh, yeah. It. I mean it's it's always crazy when when you get law enforcement involved and, and you know unfortunately in your situation it was at the boat ramp which we always know those are super efficient and a good time <laughs> <laughs> yeah right <laughs> well so, it all, all all's well that ends well i guess we ended some up having of the biggest career. battles at the boat ramp yeah right a boat ramp donnie brook my buddy used to have a steelhead fly called that <laughs> <laughs> And now a brief message from our sponsors. Introducing the Trist All-Fly Kit, Composite Development's latest game-changing innovation. Utilizing the same butt section, the All-Fly morphs from 5-weight to an 8-weight via interchangeable sections. Need a little more length? Pop the extender into place and the 9-foot rod becomes a 10-footer. All housed within an ingenious tri-folding magnet rod tube, the All-Fly is the most versatile fly fishing tool ever devised, negating the need for multiple rods. Switch from delicate presentations with tiny parachutes to hucking gaudy coneheads. This package must be seen to be believed. Go to cd-fishing.us, click the video tab, and see the Trist All-Fly in action. And remember to go fishing. So, Marcus, uh, your kind of home waters are the Black Hills, and um, I've never fished out there, man. Can you kind of describe what the fishery's like? Yeah, I mean, um, it's all small screen for the most part, and so uh, you're going to see a lot of indicator fishing, you know, smaller indicators, uh, dry flies, streamers. Uh, but we also have a healthy population of prairie lakes, uh, which hold pike, carp, uh, bass, largemouth, and smallmouth, and so there's a wide variety of of fishing that you can do all in one area and the crazy thing about the black hills is once you get out of the hills you're in the prairie and so the geography and landscape changes pretty quickly like where i'm at i'm 10 minutes from the foothills of the black hills and where i live it's it's pretty much prairie so i mean it's an agriculture town and so you see a lot of small streams it if you've ever fished and, and I haven't fished it, but I fish with guys who are from Pennsylvania. And it's, gosh, this place reminds me a lot of Pennsylvania. Hmm. Um, you know, we don't get as much, I don't think, limestone, but, um, you know, a couple of tailwaters um, that are out here. But they're not big. They're not like uh, the things you see in Montana or Wyoming or Colorado. Um, so it's, it's mostly a creek fishing game. And... You know, uh, dry fly fishing is not as prevalent as it is out west. So you don't see the, you know, the giant salmon fly hatches or the green drakes or things like that. But you, you do see a lot of BWOs. Um, you'll see some yellow sallies, some PMDs, things like that. Um, but in really, you know, small numbers, they're not they're not those massive hatches where you're choking on bugs. Um, but you do get, you know, kind of all aspects of, of the fly fishing realm. So it, it makes the area a lot of fun another benefit of the area is not a lot of people live out here and so that's uh, a really nice aspect of it you're not battling crowds so much and so you may go um, on the creek an entire day and see one or two people if that and so it's it's a good place to definitely recharge your batteries yeah there's no real population base around you to speak of um you know, to go infiltrate those waters. That's a good thing. It's a great thing. I'm, I mean, we have Rapid City, which is right around 70,000 people. Um, but, you know, out of that 70,000 people, there's not, you know, 40,000 of them don't fly fish. So it's, it's a small number of folks. And, and we're right on the border of Wyoming, too. And so, you know, we're probably two and a half hours from Casper, um, short drive from Sand Creek. Uh, over by Beulah, um, not far from the Bighorn, you know, four hours from the Bighorn to Fort Smith from where I live. So, you know, we, we do have ample opportunity to hit big water if we want to, um, but fishing's good here. So don't generally need to travel too far unless you're looking for something just a little bit different. 
Yeah, or to go run into a bunch of people. Mm-hmm. Yep. <laughs> but I've got friends in those places, so so that's a good thing. So how's the pike fishing around you? It's not bad. Uh, there, there are a few lakes, uh, a couple of bigger lakes and, and some smaller prairie lakes that uh, do carry uh, good numbers of pike. And, um, you know, it's not, it's not uncommon to see people pull, you know, 36 to 40 inch pike on a fly. Um, nice. There's a couple of dams close in Wyoming that, you know, if, if you hold an annual Wyoming license too, like a lot of us do, um, you go over there and you can, you can rail pike all day and it's, it's a good time. It does benefit you to have a boat sometimes, uh, for some of those bigger waters, but for some of the smaller prairie lakes, you can, I mean, you can get a float tube or a personal pontoon and go out there and, and nail fish all day. Um, so it's, uh, pike fishing isn't bad. It's, I mean, it's, it's good in the spring, uh, until, until early summer. And then you usually get a bloom or two that happens in some of those lakes. And so it kind of dies off and then picks back up in the fall. Right. Yeah, man, I love pike fishing. So that's cool. I'm going to have to come out there and poke around one of these days. It's so much fun. You know, I, I got into it by accident. A buddy of mine, he said uh, he was tying pike flies and I was kind of interested in them. And uh, he said, well, do you want to go pike fishing? And I'm like, well, man, I don't have an eight weight. And he's like, I'll loan you one. And I hate using other people's gear. Because I don't want to break it. And he's like, no, he's like, just just come with us. Come fish with us. And so we went out and we had just a, I mean, unheard of numbers day for Pike. <laughs> we, right. we just smoked them that day. But, you know, most of those Pike flies were tied like on a Gami B10S and the barb wasn't pinched on them. And so, you know, when you're, when you're getting ready to release that fish, it's you better know what you're doing or have a long enough pliers. Otherwise, it's going to be messy. Yeah, right. Yeah, we, uh, yeah, and a lot of those fish, you have to use two sets of pliers. Mm-hmm. Yeah, one to open up the mouth, one to pry the mouth open, and one to remove the hook. Oh, and <laughs> they, they will make a mess of your hands, too. They will. Uh, they will. And, you know, I do it. It's funny. My buddy always gives me, gives me crap because um, I usually go with him one of the first trips of the year. And for some reason... I always reach my ma- my hand into the mouth of one of the first ones I catch. And every time he's like, I, I, here we go again, man. So I'm always bleeding right <laughs> out of the cave. But maybe my theory is that getting a little human blood in the water gets the, the pike bite going. I don't know. Just chumming them. Yeah. Right. What kind chumming them in. What, <laughs> what kind of pike flies do you guys run? Uh, they're usually a little bit smaller. Um, you know, it's not, we're not, I mean, five to eight inches is going to get you most of your fish, you know, you don't, you don't necessarily need to go 10 to 12 or anything like that, but, you know, standard, um, you know, just your, your hollow ties, um, bulkheads, uh, stuff with a Buford head, stuff that pushes a lot of water, you know, um, we'll get them. And so there's, I like to fish like Andreas Anderson's delivery man. Uh, that's one of my favorites. And I mean, it's, it's a long, it's a bigger fly. Uh, but God, that thing's got so much soul to it. I mean, it just, it just moves. And, um, and then I, I fish a lot of the, you know, just the, they're almost like bulkhead deceiver style flies, um, mm-hmm. you know, with either fish mask on it or just, uh, uh, just glued eyes. Um, but those, they'll seem to do the trick as long as it looks like the silhouette of a bait fish. You're, you're usually, uh, in good shape. So you don't need to do much. You just need to find them. And that's, I mean, that's half the battle is, is finding them because they're always cruising. Right, right. It sounds like you're kind of a fly junkie. Little bit, little bit. So do you tie then? I do, you know, and uh, kind of how I got into fly fishing was just kind of start at the beginning because that's, that's probably pretty important. But, uh, you know, I, I read a lot as a kid. I still read a decent amount uh, when I have time. But, you know, I started reading about, uh, fly fishing, you know, river runs through it, the river Y books like that. Um, and then saw some of the movies and, and I thought it was cool. I mean, I fell in love with the romanticism of it, you know, dry flies all day. And and then I figured out it wasn't that at all. It was a lot harder than it looked in the movies or the books. Um, and so I kind of, I kind of dropped off it for a while. You know, I fooled around with it when I was a kid, but I didn't really know what I was doing. My dad and I would go in the backyard kind of practice casting and things like that but 
neither of us were very good. We really didn't understand what the hell we were doing. Um, and so, uh, so kind of dropped it and spin and fished for most of my teen years, you know, and caught, caught a lot of fish and had a lot of fun, but, uh, was always attracted to fly fishing. It always kind of stuck in the back of my head. You know, when I got done with college and, and things like that, um, the economic crisis had hit and, um, you know, I'm walking out of graduate school with a lot of education and no experience. And that doesn't make for, you know, a very marketable candidate at that point in time. <laughs> and I still wanted to fly fish though. I still wanted to. And then I, I met a woman and, um, you know, shortly after, uh, I finished graduate school and got my first real job in the center part of the state and didn't really have an area to fly fish. So I thought, um, until I really got into it. Uh, but even then it was one of those things where it was like, I was always thinking about it, man. It was always, it was always in my head and, and I couldn't shake it for some reason. And, you know, um, I worked at a job where it was just, uh, pretty reasonable during the school year, but during the summers it was just insane. And so, uh, kind of burnt myself out on that. We started having children, had no balance in my life, um, you know, I had no healthy hobby to help kind of level things out. And uh, we were getting ready for a career change. Um, and I remember flying back from Chicago shortly before our daughter was born. Uh, it was like August. And my wife's like, hey, you know, why don't you just take a fly rod with you and stay with your parents and, and just fish for a day? And I thought, you know, that's a really good idea. And so I did. And uh, I drove back to Pier that day. And, she asked me, she said, Hey, how'd it go today? Did you catch any fish? And I'm like, you know, I think I had a couple of strikes and I still didn't know what the hell I was doing. I had no idea at all. And, um, and so I had to lie to my wife about catching fish, which is, you know, <laughs> one of those things where it's a white lie. That's okay. Right. But, uh, you don't want to get caught in too many of them. And I, I had to tell that story a few more times before I started catching, uh, catching the drift on things. But, uh, but we had a child and prepared to move and to move back home. And, um, it was the strangest thing, but it was the best thing for our family at that point in time because it, uh, it allowed my wife to stay home, uh, with our daughter. And, um, it allowed us to get back to an area where, um, I had family and, uh, we had things that we loved. And so we both liked being outside. Um, but I decided that at that point in time I had to have, because I was taking on a job where I was running an organization. And so I had to have, you know, some semblance of balance between being a dad, being a husband, um, running a, a nonprofit. Yeah. That's um, a lot of stress, man. Well, yeah. And it was, it was, you know, we, we had Nadia in October. We moved in January. I uh, took a new job in January. And so it was, I mean, it was all in one fell swoop, like within two months, you bought a house in May. And so it was, it was just really fast. But, uh, but I've, I've kind of figured that, you know, Julie had kind of suggested, maybe you should do this. Maybe you should get back into fishing. And, um, I thought to myself, well, yeah, but I'm going to have to lie to you all the time about like, catching fish and stuff like that. So I don't know if it's really worth it, but, um, but I started studying that winter and, um, and, you know, I read a lot of books, um, on fly fishing, um, read some George Daniel stuff, uh, read some stuff that Kelly Gallup had written, you know, um, read some of Tom Rosenbauer stuff just to kind of get a basic idea of what I really needed to do, you know? Um, and then I started, um, consulting the fly shop, you know, and uh, hanging out there more. Um, and then the numbers started coming in and I started balancing a little bit better. Um, and you know, my wife has been more than generous with, letting me go out when I need to go out, when I need to clear my head and when I need to get back in the game, you know, because uh, a healthier head means I'm a better dad, means I'm a better spouse, and means I'm a better leader at work. And, um, you know, I think it's kind of cliche to say it. And I've heard a lot of people say it, and I've heard people on your podcast say it, that, you know, in some way, shape, or form, that fly fishing saved their lives. And right. it's a hundred, it's a, man, it's a hundred percent true. You know, um, that's not to say that, you know, you'd be wandering around without a home or anything like that, but I mean, it saves your sanity. And 
I don't think that uh, anyone can really explain it until you experience it. You know, it's one of those things where you know it when you feel it, but it's really, really hard to describe that feeling where all your problems wash away in three hours. You know, it's, it's yep, absolutely yep, incredible. You get in the zone, and that's all you're thinking about. Mm-hmm. Absolutely. So, is there a fly shop in Belfouche? No, there's not. There, there are two fly shops in the area. There's one in Spearfish. It's a small. It's more of an outdoor store than a fly shop. They do guided trips um, in and around the Spearfish area, um, but the big shop is actually in Rapid City, and uh, it's we are super, super fortunate to have that shop uh, and the guys who run it because they're great sticks and um, they're good people and they have one heck of a selection as far as tying materials as far as rods reels etc go i mean they carry top end stuff they carry affordable stuff um but they uh they have a solid operation and they've been in business a long time and so i think they've been in business since 96 so right around 25 30 years oh cool Um, wow right on but uh but yeah they have they have one of the better tying selections around um and you're starting to see fly shops carry that more. Um, whereas before, I don't, I don't think you can make a hell of a lot of money selling feathers. But right. there's been kind of there's been kind of a renaissance in tying, and uh, yeah, you know, and and that's cool to see because you see a lot of creative people out there. But um, but yeah, there's there's two fly shops in the area, and so uh, the one in Rapid City carries uh, quite a bit more as far as materials, rods, reels, etc. Cool. And uh, how old are your kids now? Uh, our daughter is six and our son is three. So are you, are you tying flies with them? You know, the little guy takes interest in it, which is pretty cool to see. Um, he, he likes to spin thread around the hook and, you know, pull around on things. And he always wants to tie a squirmy wormy, but, uh, (laughs) (laughs) he just doesn't know how terrible that material is. (laughs) After after a while, he's not going to want to tie those because they suck to tie. But, uh, but yeah, I, I guess I guess I sort of am kind of a fly junkie. Um, you know, I I get out quite a bit, but um, the tying didn't come until later. You know, it it came out of necessity or and in, in convenience more than anything. Again, though, it's good for your sanity and it it gets you thinking about fishing. Oh yeah, for sure. I mean, um, you know, and there's so many there's so many resources available. I remember my parents got me like a it was like a Thompson style vice when I was you know, 15 or so or whatever. And I just kind of sponged stuff around the, around the hook. I really didn't know what I was doing. And, um, my wife just got tired of me buying flies, honestly. And she's like, you got a vice sitting there. She's like, this is a great idea. You're going to save so much money. <laughs> like, right. Like, <laughs> That's the big lie. <laughs> oh, man, it's, it's like a total carnival game. You ever play those games at a carnival where they're pushing the coins toward the edge? Yeah. <laughs> right. That's fly time. It's like, you know, like 20 more dollars. <laughs> great analogy. <laughs> Yeah, it is a carnival game. Yeah, that's funny, man. My our kids are six and three too, and um, my boy, because I get up early, I just do. I wish I didn't sometimes, but mm-hmm. you know, I this time of year I go downstairs and I tie a half a dozen flies every morning, and and now he yep. gets up like if he's not up when I'm up, he's up shortly after. So we're talking, you know, five five thirty in the morning. And he comes down with me and, you know, he's so excited. Let's go tie flies, dad. And, and, um, I let him pick out the materials and then, you know, now he'll sit on my lap and he tied his first, uh, his first, uh, don't, don't tell, you know, don't tell his mother, but you know, he got his first chubby on down there the other day and we, <laughs> he, tied, he tied a good one. It was surprisingly good. Um, so yeah, it's it's cool. It's a fun thing. Uh, to sh- I remember being a little kid and tying with my dad. It's a it's a you know better than having them sit down and watch TV or something like that. It's a cool experience to share with kids. It's their artistic juices flowing. It, it really is, you know. And, and I don't know about you, um, but like like I said, my wife kind of spurred me into it because she just she just got tired of, of packages showing up to the house with flies in them <laughs> only to have more packages show up the following week, you know, and, and, uh, and it's funny because the kids, you know, they, 
my wife is is big into crafting she crochets she does uh sublimation work she does vinyl all sorts of stuff and so our kitchen is just littered with you know from strong schlop into marabou to vinyl to whatever um and this is just what the kids are kind of growing up around and um you know in some way shape or form they 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 kind of enjoy it you know they'll be going through materials and, and looking at things and um you know they're starting to be able to name some of them and uh you know they they really like saying words like marabou they like yep. saying words like schlopping right uh, yep <laughs> yep <laughs> yep slash yep yeah yeah oh my, my wife hates flashaboo man <laughs> it's <God>. everywhere everywhere <laughs> Um, does your wife has she tied? Does she has she tried tying at all? She's tied one fly, and um, and it was because I prompted her to. I was like, "Hey, you should really do this." And they're like, "You've got really good attention to detail, so I think you'd be good at this." And uh, and she said, "I'll tie one." And so I think we sat down and we tied like a God. It was like um, it was like a sweet pea jig or like a um, like a skinny Nelson something like that. And a uh, real simple pattern, you know, but I was amazed at somebody who just sat down and I kind of showed her, you know, okay, this is how bobbin works. This is what you need to do. You know, I'll tell you where to put the materials and just, you know, from, you know, just one little thing, she was able to, to put that together and it looked half-ass decent. Like it looked decent and uh, a lot better than the first slides that I tied, you know, and um, I'm thinking to myself, well, you know, better not do this for too much longer because she's going to be better than me. But she was a woman of her word, huh? She, she won and done. Yeah. She sat down, tied it and then went back to whatever she was doing. Yeah. I know my wife's way more artistic than I am. I know she'd be awesome at fly tying, but I haven't been able to quite sink her into that one yet. I don't know about you, but it was like, um, when I first, when I started, and I didn't start too long ago, but I've really gotten into it. Um, I didn't think I'd have the patience to do it. Yeah. There's been times in my life when I haven't. Yeah, that's probably true. I kind of have fly tying ADD. Like I can only tie, if, if I tie a dozen of the same fly, that's hard for me. I typically tie between three and six of one pattern and then move on. Are you able to sit down and crank out a bunch of them? Nope. I can't do it. I, I just don't have it in me. Uh, kind of like you, I just, you know, I've got so many ideas flowing through my head. When you sit down and you start spinning that first bug, and, you know, I may start with something that's like a sow bug, like sort of like a Ray Charles, and then before you know it, I'm off to tying something like, uh, you know, uh, like a Barely Legal or a Golden. Um, you know, or even, or even a pike fly. Right. You know, uh, but, and it's, when you've got materials at your disposal and things like that, it's pretty easy just to switch gears and say, you know what, I'm tired of this. I want to move on to this and, and go to that. Yeah. There's certain flies you kind of, you have to have, right? Like, all right, I got to sit down I got to tie my... I gotta tie pheasant tails, or you know, I gotta tie, I gotta tie chubbies, I gotta tie, you know, parachute atoms or whatever. And then you kind of, for me, I kind of sit down and grind those out, and then I'm like, all right, now I can have some fun and tie a steelhead flyer. I love tying pike flies. Um, yeah, that's kind of my process, scatterbrain. Yeah, no, I, I, I totally identify with what you're saying because those first few that you know. Like if, if you're going out and, and your time flies the night before, because that's how, that's just how it works, you know? So right. Like I've got all week to do it, but you know what? I think I'm going to wait till like 10 o'clock on Friday before I tie and uh, sit down at the bench or, or whatever and spin out a few of those. And they feel, they just feel like a freaking chore. And then you get to doing what you want to do. And before you know it, it's, it's midnight, one o'clock and you're looking at a half finished pipeline. You're like, God, I got about a half hour left on this thing. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. <laughs> it's going to get just destroyed after about two fish. Oh, yeah. Pretty much. <laughs> Do you, what's your, if you had 
for your zone, for your region, if you were limited to one, let's say one dry fly, what would it be for the summer? <sighs> Spring into summer, um, probably go with the betas pattern. Um, probably go with something like a student, um, which I think is is a phenomenal pattern. Or you know what that is? Um, I'm gonna have to look that up. Look it up. It's it's uh, it's popular on the bighorn too. Um, but it's just basically, I mean, it's the simplest dry fly pattern. Um, it's basically a CDC feather, one CDC feather, one or two CDC feathers. And I mean, you just lay it on the hook, create a tail, get a body and a wing, and that's that's it. Um, but it ropes fish. And um, uh, nice. I, I, I like fishing a student. I like my kind of dry fly. Oh, yeah. <laughs> I mean, you're not talking, you're not doing parachutes or anything like that. Um, I do have a soft spot for caddis though, you know, um, just a simple elk hair caddis or, uh, God, what's that one with the one, uh, with the Z line coming out for the tail? Um, X caddis? X caddis, yes. I love that fly. It's just so versatile. It is. It's funny because around here, like we don't fish a ton of caddis and where I, I grew up in central Oregon and, um, on a river that was, you know, caddis centric. Um, and we fished a ton of caddis and, and I, I, in fact, I remember asking one, one of the outfitters that I worked for one day, I was like, Hey man, you got any, you got any elk hairs? Or he's like, what? I'm like, you got a, you got an elk hair or a Goddard or an ex caddis or something? He's like, cat. He's like, I don't have a caddis in my box. <laughs> I don't know what a caddis fly. <laughs> you know, I mean, I've been a guide and an outfitter here for 20 years or something so anyway uh yeah it's funny how but i you know i i love that x caddis and last year we were on the missouri fishing was tough water was high and, and it just kind of like fish just started coming up kind of late in the day on the second or third day or whatever it was and uh they were finicky like those missouri fish are and i put on that oh, yeah. caddis and you know they all ate it and my buddy who's from bozeman was like what are you fishing and i showed him he's like i've never even seen that thing like how do you not know about the x caddis man oh my god that thing <laughs> just kills fish it does it's the best it's a craig matthews pattern isn't it mm -hmm. i think so i think i think that is a craig matthews pattern yeah, with the Comparadon with the Zelon tail, too, I think. Yep. I think that's the same guy. I remember picking up my first ex-caddis at, I was at a Jacklands in West Yellowstone. I, I, They said, pick this up, and they're going to be hatching, you know, like 1 o'clock in the afternoon. So I got to the Firehole River at uh, one, 1 in the afternoon, and they were popping, and I didn't know what I was doing, but I was catching fish, man. Yeah, man, they love that bug. It's they do. It's a, yep, it is an awesome fly. So, what's the name of your? You work. You're the director of a nonprofit, right, Marcus? Yeah, I am. Um, I run a nonprofit called Trek, and uh, what we do are uh, uh, family programs. We do Head Start programs for children in need and families in need. And uh, you know, needs kind of really a relative term um, because we see families from all walks of life. Uh, we see families that have economic challenges um, but are really rich in other ways. And then we see families who uh, don't have as many uh, typical economic challenges uh, but have you know some struggles in other ways. Uh, and so we're there to work with the whole family and help them to, you know, as I tell kind of my team is, is we just we want families to be better off than when they came into the program. And so uh, I didn't know it. Um, when I was in undergrad, um, I, was, I was thinking I was going to be an attorney, and uh, um, for some reason, public service fit. You know, I liked helping people. I liked numbers. I liked research. Um, I liked nerdy stuff, and uh, and I just like like helping people. And so when I left the Department of Education in 2010 or 2014, um, it was to help people in the community that I grew up in and a community that I loved and thought was a great place to raise kids, you know? And so um, that's probably what my life's gonna end up being, you know, is, is uh, helping another person uh, because I think it's important. And uh, I think that when you see some of those families that are, you know, for lack of a better term, kind of down on their luck and you work with them um, and give them the tools that they need to succeed, 
and you see those successes and you see those families flourish and they come back to you in a couple years and say, hey, you know what? It's because of your program or it's because of this, this person or um, this teacher, this home visitor that uh, made me the person I am today. Um, that's a pretty incredible feeling. And it's hard to quantify that with a salary. And so, you know, what, what some nonprofits lack in salary, they make up for and things like that. Uh, so it's, it's been a stressful journey. It's been an incredible journey. Um, but that's what we do. We, we help families. And so that's how we serve four counties in the uh, Western South Dakota and about 160 families. So. Well, that's awesome, man. And, um, you know, now more than ever, um, families, uh, families need all the support they can, they can muster. Yeah, I think, I mean, I think you're right, you know, cause you're not seeing, um, at least, you know, from, from what we've seen, uh, and, uh, I mean, I don't know how you grew up, but, um, we had a pretty strong nuclear family and you're not seeing as much of that anymore. You're seeing right. a lot more single parent families. Right. Yeah. How can, how can folks, um, help your nonprofit? Is there, um, is there a way they can reach out to you? Um, well, we, we only serve, we only serve certain families in the area. And so, you know, um, the best thing is, uh, we've got a Facebook page, um, we've got a website, uh, but, um, you know, we, we can't fundraise um, because of federal rules. Uh, so that's kind of out of the picture. But um, but no, we, I mean, we, we're always in need of volunteers, things like that. So if people are in the area um, and want to volunteer with us, we're, we're always willing to accept volunteers. Cool. And what's that Facebook page? Or what? It's, uh, it's called Trek Badlands Head Start. Trek Badlands Head Start. Got it. So yep. And that's all you got to do is... Is Google that and, or Facebook that and the website and uh, the Facebook page will show up. So go to the February where you can access a complete library of our podcast and read more about our guests, their fishing stories and favorite fly patterns. We're always looking for exceptional fly fishing yarns. And if you have one to spend, shoot us an email at info at the February The February room is always free. But if you feel like throwing a nickel in the pond, we appreciate any additional listener support. For companies and individuals interested in sponsorship opportunities, please contact us for our media kit. Thanks for stopping by the February Room, and we'll see you down here next week.